The Bible is an amazing book because of the continuity of it. I was talking to someone the other day and they were trying to explain to someone how that the Bible is the inspired Word of God and we were talking about uh, different aspects of the Bible. There is a continue, uh, continuation of the same thought that there is a God in heaven, that He is all powerful, He loves mankind, mankind sins, God sends the Savior, and mankind has the opportunity for salvation. But one of the things that is very unique about the Bible, and especially the Old Testament as it blends into the New Testament, is the idea of what we call types and shadows. Uh, Types and shadows. In other words, as you read the Old Testament, you begin to discover um, the type that appears in the Old Testament that will be revealed in the New Testament. Or in the Old Testament, you find a shadow of what the real will be in the New Testament. is a type of Christ and makes all kinds of comparisons. There are those who think that Melchizedek is a type of Christ. There are those, as we're studying in the book of Genesis, that think that Joseph is a type of Christ, a shadow of the Savior uh, to come. But also as we move through the Old Testament, there are certain uh, objects or certain things that are a type of Christ. Uh, Moses is considered a type of Christ. Um, The Passover is considered a type of Christ. The Passover lamb is considered a type of Christ. In fact, when John the Baptist saw Jesus coming to him down the way to be baptized in John chapter 1 and verse 29, uh, he saw Jesus and he told the people that were standing there, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. He is making a type, any type situation there. He's comparing Jesus Christ to the Passover lamb that protected the people of Israel and how that lamb died for the nation. So Jesus Christ, the real, is going to die for the entire world to protect the world. But it's interesting as you go through the Bible with all these different shadows, all these different types of Christ, only one, did Christ ever say was truly a representation of him? Only one did Christ make the appeal that this was a type of me. This represented me. And we find this particular passage in the book of John where Jesus says these words. In John chapter 3, beginning at verse 14, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness... Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Of all the different things that people can make comparisons to out of the Old Testament that they say is a representation of Jesus Christ, of all the objects that we find in the Old Testament, that clearly there is a representation of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ only one time says, this is what represents me. And so I think it's important this morning that we 
do a study of this idea of the serpent in the wilderness and how is it a representation of Jesus Christ? Why did Jesus say this? This morning we're going to be talking about the snake or a serpent in the wilderness and going to make some points from the text and make some obvious parallels or conclusions that perhaps you thought about or perhaps you've not thought about. So looking at the text, and I want to read it again for emphasis sake, and we appreciate Andrew reading, for, reading it for us already once today, but I want this text to be in our minds because we're going to be studying today. But beginning at verse 4, it says, They travel from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. And the reason for this was Edom was blocking their way. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert? There is no bread. There is no water. And we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them, and they bit the people, and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take away the snakes from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it, look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, he lived. Now let's look at some things in this text. The very first thing I want us to look at this morning is the sin. The people sinned and they were punished. We see here in these verses what the actual sin was. It says as they traveled on their way, the people grew impatient. I want you to think about this for a moment. They grew impatient where? On the way. On the way where? Where were they going? They were going to the promised land. This wasn't just a trip where they were out sightseeing or or touring the country. The way that's being talked about here is the way to the land of promise. The way to the land that flowed with milk and honey. It was the promised land. It was a very special place that God was preparing for them. They became impatient on a journey to a reward. Now think about that for a moment. God was going to give them a land with cities they did not build. Was going to give them a land that had vineyards they did not plant going to give them a land that had cattle that they didn't raise. It was a land that flowed with milk and honey, and they grew impatient on the way. But notice what else they did. They spoke against God. If there's ever a more grievous sin, I don't know what it is, that somebody would speak against God. Sometimes when I'm in a public setting or I'm watching television or listening to something and somebody takes God's name in vain and blasphemes his name, I don't know how that person can do such a thing. When you think about the goodness and the graciousness of God and how God blesses us every single day and how he has provided so much for us. But yet, in this particular situation, these were people who were God's people, who God was taking to the promised land. And yet, 
they spoke against God. Is there a greater sin in the entire world than to speak against God Almighty? But look at what they were saying. They're saying, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert? Now think about the irony of that particular statement. Think about the foolishness of that statement. Why did God bring them out of the land of Egypt? Because they were slaves. Because they were under bondage. Because Pharaoh was treating them terribly. Because they were living a nightmare in a foreign land. And God brought them out of Egypt to free them, to bring them out of slavery and bring them to a great and wonderful land where they would be free and they would no longer be under bondage. But instead, they they speak against God and it says, why in the world did you ever take us out of Egypt? Notice what else they said. He says, there is no bread. Folks, that's a lie. All we have to read is several chapters earlier in this particular book, and guess what God was giving them? He was giving them manna from heaven. He was giving them special angel food, if you will. He was giving them something to eat. In fact, on this entire journey, the Bible tells us that their shoes never wore out, their clothes never wore out, that God provided quail for them to eat as far as meat is concerned and provided bread for them to eat, and it was called manna. So they're saying something against God that's just an absolute lie. They had bread. Now we're going to see later on they just just weren't satisfied with the bread they were getting. But then they also make this absurd claim that says there is no water. If you'll look just a few chapters earlier, you'll find what happened. God providing for them water. Once again, they're speaking against, against God and they're basically lying. Usually when we speak against God, who is wrong? Who is lying? Who is making a false statement? God doesn't lie. It's usually that we have, it's us who have the misunderstanding who is making the falsehood because we don't understand the situation fully. But notice they say something that's extremely ugly They say we detest this miserable food, thus proving the point they made. Oh, they had bread. It just wasn't the bread they wanted. They wanted something different than the manna. Getting gifts from God, getting bread from heaven wasn't good enough for these people. They wanted something else. They weren't satisfied with what God was giving them. They wanted more. So we can see that this is not just some kind of light little sin they committed. This is a very grievous sin. Uh, They are impatient. They're grumbling. They're murmuring. We need to understand how terrible a sin it is when we as the Lord's people grumble and murmur and complain against God and against his people. They basically spoke against God and told things that weren't true and they detested the blessings that God were already giving them. Let us always be careful that we don't commit the same sins. But then there's the punishment. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes against them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. Back many years ago, when I was working at Palmetto Bible Camp, we had a a young lady there that worked in the kitchen with us that was deathly afraid of snakes. In fact, you could just start talking about snakes 
and she'd pass out, basically. She was so scared of snakes. And all of us maybe have a healthy fear of snakes. If I uh, see a snake, I, you know, I'll give it some distance, even if it's a, uh, a, a non-venomous snake. Remember when I was growing up in high school, I had a friend by the name of Scott Honeycutt, and he loved snakes for some reason. And we were out walking on a trail one time, and he saw a snake, and he immediately started chasing that snake and tripped and fell right on that snake, and that snake bit him right on the tip of his nose. That taught me right then, I don't want to mess with snakes, but it didn't bother him. He picked that snake up and took it home. But can, can you imagine, all of a sudden you're there in the Israelite camp, and out of nowhere, all these snakes start coming in. Just snakes and snakes and snakes, and these are deadly poisonous snakes, and they're biting all the people. Imagine the screams. Imagine the people running, but they can't escape. And as these people are being bit by these snakes, they began to die. This is the punishment that God has placed upon his people. Now, as I think about that, and I think about us today, I think about the fact that we too, like the Israelite people, are sinners. Romans chapter 3 and verse 10 reminds us that there is none righteous, no, not one. Romans chapter 3 and verse 23 reminds us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans chapter 6 and verse 23 reminds us that the wages of sin is death. Because of our sin, we're going to die. And folks, it all started with a serpent. Ever thought about that? It all started with a serpent. In Genesis chapter 3, we have the story of the devil being represented as a serpent, and it's because of the fact that Adam and Eve were not satisfied with what God had given them. And Satan comes to them and says, God says that you will die, but you won't die. You don't need to listen to him. You don't need to believe what he says. You can be unsatisfied with what he's given you, and you can partake of this tree, this one tree that he commanded you not to partake of. And of course, Eve and Adam partook of the fruit of this forbidden tree and ushered in sin and death for all mankind forever. It all started with that serpent. In fact, Revelation chapter 12 and verse 9 describes the devil, Satan, as the ancient serpent who's trying to destroy the people. Satan is trying to destroy our lives. Satan is trying to cause us heartache, trying to cause us pain. He's trying to cause us to die. And every day he tries to bite us and devour us. Cause us to lose our soul. Adam and Eve, because of their dissatisfaction of what God had given them, Satan, in the form of a serpent, caused them to sin. The Israelites, because they were dissatisfied with what God had given them, he sent serpents into the, snake, into the camp to bite them. We too today, if we're not careful, can become dissatisfied with what God has given us. And Satan, that deadly serpent is waiting there to bite us to make sure that we too are going to be punished. But looking at the text, you also notice not only did the people sin and were punished, 
But also notice that God provided a way of salvation. The text reads like this. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. The people needed a way of salvation. The people realized they were lost. The people realized their sin and they needed a way, a remedy to be saved. They couldn't save themselves. They couldn't stop the snakes. They couldn't heal the snake bites and live. They had no antivitam of any type. Moses couldn't save them. There's nothing that Moses could do. It took God and God stepping in to provide a way to save these particular people. Only God could do it. The people were helpless. They needed God's help in order to be saved. So God told Moses to make a snake and put it up on a pole, and anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. Now the curiosity behind this is, why in the world did God ask Moses to do this? Now think about it for a moment. People sin, the snakes start coming in, they start biting people, people start dying, the people ask for a a way of salvation, God says this is the way of salvation, make a bronze snake, put it up on a pole, have the people look at it. Why God? What does this have to do with anything? Well that's the point. You see... God is teaching the Israelite people, and he's also teaching us, that it's about faith. What are you going to put your faith in? Now, think of the absurdity of this. I can look at that snake up on a pole, and somehow or another my bite's going to be healed, my my body's not going to die, all because I'm looking at a snake on a pole? Well, that's that's what God said to do. That's what God said to do as far as where to put your faith in. If you want to be saved, you need to put your faith in that whether you understand it or not. We are reminded in Romans chapter 1 and verse 17 that the just shall live by faith. It's all about our faith. And here was the case with the Israelite people. God said this was the way that needed to be done. This is where you needed to put your faith in, what you needed to put your faith in, whether you understood it or not. You know, God does a lot of things like that. Uh, God comes up with things that maybe doesn't make sense to us. It it defies uh, what we think is logical oftentimes. For example... When the Israelite people came before the city of Jericho, God had won different battles with his people before, but when he came to the city of Jericho, instead of laying siege to the city, instead of throwing rocks at it or trying to shoot arrows into it, what did he do? He had the people march around the city. Didn't left left a weapon, didn't raise a ladder, didn't get a battering ram. They marched around the city. Now what general is going to come up with that? doesn't matter. God said, this is the way to do it. And if you do it this way, then the city is yours. 
Naaman, when he went to see the prophet, he was covered in leprosy and, and God's prophet said, if you want to be healed, go dip in the Jordan River seven times. Even Naaman was upset. He says, are not the rivers of, of far, far better than this river Jordan? But his servants talked him into obeying God, and he went and dipped into the Jordan River seven times, and he came out, and his leprosy was gone. Oftentimes, God defies human emotion. For example, when God told Abraham to sacrifice his only son, Isaac, as far as from Sarah, his promised son, the one through whom the lineage of the world would come, the Savior of the world would come, That defies human emotion. God, why would you ask such a thing of me? Why would you want me to kill my own son? I love my son. Why would you want me to do that? But God said, this is something I want you to do that proves your faith, Abraham, even if it defies emotion. Sometimes God does things that defies experience. For example... When Noah preached for those hundreds of years, he preached for a hundred years that there was a flood coming. The people scoffed at him because of the fact that they had never seen anything like rain. It was beyond their human experience. But Moses kept saying, there's a great day coming. There's a great day coming. And you need to be ready. Even though it might not make sense to you. And God has provided a remedy for us, we who are dead in sin, we who have been bit by that serpent Satan, and now we're going to die eternally. God has provided a remedy, and that remedy is not a serpent this time, but a son. But I want you to notice the interesting parallel and why Jesus makes the point that he makes in John chapter 3. Why did he compare himself to this serpent? Well, think about it. What was causing the problems for the Israelite people? What was causing them to die? It was the serpents. The serpents were killing them. And so Moses said, put a, uh, God said to Moses, put a serpent up on a pole, and if you'll put your faith in that, you'll, you'll live. Well, what's that got to do with Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ became sin for us. In other words, what is killing us? What is causing us to lose our soul? What is going to give us spiritual death is sin. So what did Jesus Christ do when he died on the cross? He took the very thing that was killing us, the very thing that was condemning us, the very thing that was destroying us, and he became that when he was nailed to the cross. He became the very thing that was killing us. In the same way that the snakes were killing the Israelite people, and God said, you put that on a pole. In a similar way, God said, Jesus, sin is killing the people I need you to be put on the cross and take on that sin, become that sin. Jesus Christ became sin for us so that we can be saved. Is it no wonder then that Jesus says, just like Moses raised that serpent in the wilderness, 
so I am going to be raised. And whoever believeth in me should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, that may not make sense to us. It boggles my mind every day that God would love me so much and he provided this particular means for me to be saved. Reminds you of 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18 where it talks about the foolishness of the cross is foolish to some people, but to us who are saved, it is the power of God. God decided, even though we don't fully understand it, just like that serpent was raised in the wilderness to save the people of Israel, Jesus Christ was raised. He took on sin for us so that we can be saved. But notice also as you look in the text, not only did the people sin and were punished and God provided a way of salvation, but it's also noteworthy that we bring out that salvation requires a response. Here in the book of Numbers, it was put this way. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, he lived. Now, what does that little section of Scripture tell us? That the people had a choice. If they wanted to live, they had to look at that bronze snake and have faith that there was salvation in it. The Opposite is, if there were people who did not look at the bronze snake, they would not live. Now, the snake was there for all to see. God provided it for anyone who would take advantage of it. But the implication is from the text that there evidently were some in the camp that didn't take advantage of it. Imagine the foolishness of it. There was a means of salvation. It was right there. But perhaps there were some who said, huh? It's too much trouble to go get to a point where I can see this snake. Or there were others who thought how foolish it is for me to believe that just looking at a bronze snake is somehow or another going to heal my wounds and make me whole again. There may have been those who their families discouraged them and said, oh, there's no point in looking at the snake. It's not going to do you any good. Or it may have been there were people who and the text doesn't tell this, this is all supposition, but there may have been some people going around the camp saying, I've got a better way. I, I've got this salve. Oh, man, it's a magical salve. And if you'll buy it for one dollar, I'll give it to you and you can put it on that snake bite. But there's only one means of salvation from that snake bite. It was that bronze snake. And if you were going to be healed, you had to look at it. Now, the parallels here are very obvious. God has only provided one way for mankind to be saved. Now, Jesus Christ died for the entire world. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But the rest of the text says, For whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Yeah, Jesus died for all, but not all are going to be saved because of the fact that we have got to put our faith in him. We need to understand, first of all, that it's by God's grace that we are saved. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. We can't save ourselves. We need the redeeming blood of Jesus Christ. But yet at the same time, we need to understand that action or a response is required. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 21 reminds us that not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. 
The will of the Father expressed by his Son, Jesus Christ, in Mark 16, 16, tells us, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. There is a response required if we're going to be saved. When a person becomes a Christian, they are putting their faith and trust in the blood of Jesus Christ. In fact, when they are buried in the watery grave of baptism, they are emulating or following a pattern of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. There is power in that death. There is power in that blood. And the only way we're going to be saved if we put that faith in that blood when we become a Christian. In the same way that people had to look at that serpent and believe it had the power of healing, we too have to look at the cross of Jesus Christ and say there is the power of healing And I may not understand it. I may not fully comprehend how this all works, but I need to understand and appreciate the fact that the only way I'm going to be saved is by the power of the cross. And we need to understand as we continue to live the Christian life that we need to continue to put our faith in that cross and in that blood because that is what's going to continually heal us and make us whole. So you can understand how that of all the different ways that Jesus is expressed in the Old Testament, all the different characters we read about in the Old Testament, such as Joseph and Moses and Job and Melchizedek and all those, and we see so many comparisons to Jesus Christ and how that they were the shadow of what the real was going to be one day. Or we look at the different objects in the Bible Uh, Like, for example, manna and how that is described as bread from heaven and how that Jesus is the bread of life. Or how that the Passover lamb was a sacrifice that represented the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. But in spite of all those things, and I'm sure Jesus wouldn't disagree with any of these things as being a shadow of him or a type of him, but the one he picked out from all those the one he wanted us to think about, the one he wanted to make a comparison that's saying, this is just like me. He pointed to that time a long, long time ago. And because of the sins of the people, Moses raised up a bronze serpent for the people to put their faith in. And Jesus Christ says in the same way, I'm going to be raised up. And whosoever believes in me should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus Christ has provided a way. God has provided a way. But we need to be reminded that there is no other way to be saved. Jesus tells us in John chapter 14, verse 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh to the Father except by me. Peter reminds us in Acts chapter 4 and verse 21 that there is no other name under heaven by where mankind can be saved. There is only one way, and that is Jesus Christ. A way has been provided, and if you are not saved this morning, there is no one else to blame but you. I don't know why in the world anyone would not put their faith in Jesus Christ and be saved. Think of the foolishness of anybody in that Israelite camp. They've been bitten by a serpent. 
And that serpent's poison is spreading all through their body. And they can feel their, their breathing to start to slow down. They can feel the rigor mortis, the stiffening of the muscles that snake venom does throughout their body. And they hear about the fact, you don't have to die. You can be healed of this. All you have to go is to the center of the camp and look at that bronze serpent and you'll be healed. Who in their right mind would not take advantage of that? Well, even more unbelievable, there are people in the world today who are dying in sin and God has provided a way of salvation and it's the cross of Jesus Christ, but they simply won't put their faith in it. It just boggles the mind. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you have to ask yourself, why not? If there's something else you want to talk about, I'll be happy to talk to you about it. If there's, you don't feel comfortable talking to me, we'll find somebody else for you to talk to. But why miss the opportunity to be saved when sin is killing you? Sin is going to cause you to spend an eternity in hell. Why will you not look at the cross of Jesus Christ and be healed? Only you can answer that. But we hope that you'll answer in the affirmative and put your faith where it needs to be put in the blood of Jesus Christ. Won't you come as together we stand and sing?